Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Ginny Price, who teaches in the Veterinary Technology Program at St. Petersburg College. And I invited her on today to talk about critical thinking because she teaches an entire course in it, and I'm pretty sure I'm not a critical thinker. So welcome, Ginny. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, well, it's uh, wonderful to be here, and thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about critical thinking, what it is. Okay, first I want to just correct that I don't teach an entire course in critical thinking, but I have spoken to the college, uh, to dip my colleagues at the college uh, on critical thinking at our learning um, conference that we have, a, a teaching and learning conference at St. Petersburg College for uh, our college employees, and we also have a day that's all college day where everybody gets together and I've spoken there on critical thinking as well. I use critical thinking in my class in my classes that I teach for the vet techs and so um, I think it's super important for anyone working in the animal field or just anyone with a brain <laughs> to critically think. So yeah. how is that different from regular thinking? Okay, so in critical thinking, we're using some elements of thought, the eight elements of thought, to think through uh, any sort of problem that you might have or decision you need to make. Mm -hmm. So it can be used for any purpose whatsoever. So what are the eight elements of thought? Okay, so eight elements of thought are to make sure that you take a look at your assumptions related to this situation that you think about what's your purpose in thinking about this situation. Uh, you try to gather any questions that you might need answered. You write those all down. What questions do I need answered to understand the problem so I can make a good decision? Uh, what kind of information do I need? What sources are relevant to answer my questions to help me? Let's see, um, what kind of uh, examples or consequences could there be regarding this, you know, what's happened in the past, so I can kind of see evidence, what might work well, what might not work well, and let's see, the other ones are, I'm just going by a memory here, so uh, let's see, examples, oh, points of view, so what are your points of view, what are other people's points of view regarding this decision or idea, and um, also what are some applications of it, like if I used it, what would happen as far as consequences, and also um, inferences. So what inferences can you think related to this, if-then statements, so if I did this, then that would happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so those are the eight elements of thought, and these are all listed, I just want to mention, as a resource on the webpage of the Critical Thinking. It's called the Foundation for Critical Thinking. Okay, I will link to that in the show notes. Because that's a really good resource. In a work environment, how would this play out? So if I'm you know, facing a challenge at work, and I want to use critical thinking, do you, do you have a like a worksheet where you actually write all of these things down to get all of the information out of your head to work it through? What do you suggest? Yes, I do suggest you get a worksheet and write it down. And you can get the uh, eight elements of thought right from the website and just make your own worksheet. And when I have the students do assignments, that's what I have them do. Like in my behavior class, 
every two weeks, students are thinking through the concepts of the lesson using critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So they're practicing doing it. So you could do this at, at your work or anywhere where you just take the sheet and start writing down ideas, or you could type on your computer, probably easier, you know, so you mm -hmm. can add things, copy and paste things in there. And then it's also very good to write your own, have everyone in your group write one, and then get together and kind of brainstorm together with all your ideas. Yeah, that's a good idea to have people do it separately and then bring them together. Because we'll see things differently, the whole point of view piece, but then also various assumptions and other things that you've mentioned will be different for different people and, and the ways they look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you work together as a group initially, then you tend to compromise immediately. And when you work separately to begin with, then you can bring your ideas in and then work the compromise. Mm -hmm. So you have all the ideas first and people are able to express their ideas. And that's that's what you have to make perfectly clear to yourself and to others is that you want the honest assumptions and biases because basically – when I got my master's degree in psychology, my thesis was based on how beliefs, how our beliefs inform our behaviors. And so it's very, very important to understand what biases and assumptions and beliefs you have regarding whatever decision or behaviors you need to do so that you can understand how they're affecting the way you behave and think. I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and, and now I i didn't know I was going to want her name, but there's a psychologist who talks about implicit bias and how we are sort of wired for certain biases that we don't even, not necessarily even wired, but socialized toward them, you know, just in the messages we receive from our culture and from our upbringing, and that we're not even thinking about these things, and that if you ask us rationally, do I have these feelings, we say no. But when they do like the instantaneous test of associating words with things, we find that we do have biases in, in different directions that aren't necessarily even in line with our own values. But if we don't know they're there, we're not even we're not able to change them. But by becoming aware of them, she says, then we can start redirecting behavior to actually match what the values would be. Yes, that's absolutely correct. We were just speaking about that. I'm taking a class right now with Susan Friedman. Mm -hmm. She has a great website out there that could be useful for people called behaviorworks.org. And she's going to be on the podcast very soon, too. So I'll link to that. Oh, is she? She's awesome. And she was. She talks about this feature called our cultural fog. And that's just what you were alluding to, where we, our culture kind of trains us to think in a certain way so that we all behave in a certain way. And it can be totally erroneous to the, to the real life situation mm -hmm. and it can be harmful. So yes, we, and, and I, and that's, that's kind of the cultural fog of, of the, you know, you have to dominate your dog and that kind yes. that kind of thing. So if we take that with critical thinking and we think about it, then we start thinking, oh, well, really behavior is based on its consequences. If the reason why the animal's uh, behaving in maybe in an aggressive way or something like that is related to them just wanting us to back up mm -hmm. because we're we're scary and this the situation is too scary and so um, it's it's not really based on um, social structure 
but we as primates kind of are really focused on social structure, uh, maybe a lot more than other species. And so that's our go-to kind of reason that we think other animals behave in certain ways. And uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's reinforced by our cultural fog. And so we just keep, it's right. an easy way to um, think, you know, because life's complex now. There's a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you can do, use some life hacks or shortcuts with your thinking, of course, your brain is going to go right to that. Mm-hmm. So that's another important uh, characteristic of critical thinking. It's something you need to practice to be good at. So do you think there are times we need to stop and specifically say, I need to use critical thinking? Or do you think we need to be consciously thinking about how we're thinking much of the workday? I think most of the time we should be monitoring our thinking, especially when we're being paid to make decisions, or even in your own life. It's mm-hmm. super important that that you are present in your own mind, monitoring your thoughts, because I don't know if you've ever seen this cool um, video, but there's a video, and it's a, it's a Buddhist monk, and he's talking, and he is talking about meditation, and he's talking about our monkey mind. Mm-hmm. And I just love the way he says that, because you just get a picture of this little monkey inside your brain just doing the chattering, like yes. yada, yada, yada. And you can't shut that off. And that is not critical thinking. Mm-hmm. That is just your mind blathering on. And it's in, it can really distract you from actual thinking. Yes. And it's amazing how many thoughts there are when you're trying to really monitor your thinking that you go, oh, my mm-hmm. gosh, I'm thinking all sorts of silly stuff unrelated to what I was intending to be thinking about. Um, It just pops up and you go, wow, I got taken off on a tangent there with the monkey mind. Exactly. Exactly. So learning how to focus, you know, you can use meditation to help you with that. But learning the skills of critical thinking is just like learning the skills of playing tennis or any other sport or any other skill that we uh, try to learn or get better at. You just have to know, have some direction and just practice. Just like anything, um, you know, if you believe that you have a certain amount of intelligence and you can't fix that, you're not going to try. But as we know through science, you can increase your intelligence by practicing thinking. Yeah, Carol Dweck's work on that is really interesting. The whole fixed versus growth mindset. And we get ourselves completely stuck with these fixed mindsets about things. So so what would be some of the benefits how how would someone's life improve if they did better critical thinking okay so i think for most people decision making can be quite stressful mm-hmm. and so if you are practicing critical thinking and you're getting good at it then you feel more confident about your decisions and you're not going back and forth in your mind oh i should have done this oh i should have done that so i think that's um quite a bit of a stress reducer for us mm-hmm. and also it Eventually, you know, when you become uh, skilled at critical thinking, the decisions will come faster. So it will also be a time a time reducer as far as trying to make decisions. And those are awesome benefits because we do spend so much time trying to make a decision and then ruminating over whether or not we made the right one. It's a tough thing. 
And I think the main um, the the main uh, benefit would be making good decisions mm-hmm. that we're proud of. So, have you always been interested in critical thinking, or was there some sort of turning point where you where you discovered that learning more about this made a difference for you? Okay, well, there's a couple of things that kind of set me up for being a teacher and a thinker and being interested in thinking. Uh, both my grandmother and my mother are teachers. And my mother uh, taught uh, reading and special education for children in middle school for uh, 30 years in um, Dade County, Florida. And so she was always uh, practicing the testing and different things on us, her children, you know, of course. So I was always interested in, in how people kind of thought. And, and I've always had an interest in animals and people, how they think, how they learn, and how their emotions are involved with mm-hmm. it kind of impeding us or making it easier for us to do things. So those are the kinds of things I was interested in. I uh, went back and got my psychology bachelor's degree after I was out of uh, vet tech school for about 20 years. And I was trying to take as many classes as I could on testing and thinking and emotions and learning. And then I got my master's degree there at online at the Walden University in uh, psychology. So I tried to take all those classes as well, kind of the leaning towards that. And then at the St. Petersburg College, we had our quality education plan one year was critical thinking. And I got involved with that being chosen as the critical thinking champion for the veterinary technology program. Mm -hmm. And so I got to go out to Berkeley, California for two of the Critical Thinking Foundation conferences they had out there. And that was a real pleasure. So that's where I really got immersed in the critical thinking and saw how other people were using it and started using it in my um, classes. We did um, a a little study about how students did uh, better or worse, depending on how well they did with their critical thinking assignments as far as their learning in the class and how they could apply it. Mm-hmm. And although that was a relatively short um, study, and we did see some results just kind of showing that students that could cr- critically think could apply things more easily in a different setting so they could generalize their learning a little bit easier. Which is very valuable. Right. And that was also something I learned when I was out there was that understanding a concept and applying a concept are really two completely separate skills. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't realized that before. So I started making assignments in my classes where students had to apply different concepts at their hospital uh, clinical sites Mm -hmm. so that they had already they were kind of forced to do it in the class for an assignment. So that helped them to do it naturally, apply more of what they've learned naturally at the hospital instead of just thinking of it as a school um, right. concept, a school idea, a school skill. Right. You know? It is interesting how much learning gets set aside because we don't know how to apply it, that we get sort exactly. of stuck with, well, that was interesting, but how will I ever use it? And um for many of these things, having an assignment where you do have to go and actually do it as part of an assignment opens the door so that you're more free to apply it in other ways more naturally later. So that's kind of an awesome way of doing it from schooling. So are you now able to make decisions just like that because you're just perfect and you've got critical thinking (laughs) skills mastered and life is easy? 
Well, Colleen, not so much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a better thinker than I than I used to be. Of course, you know, I, I told you right before the podcast of having a little bit of problems with my brain right now. And, and that's part of being human is mm-hmm. you have accidents and you might, you know, damage your brain through tra- traumatic traumatic um, injuries. But um, you can still learn, you know, to mm-hmm. to do to do better over time. So I'm working on that right now. But I think also what I brought up before about, um, uh, you know, emotions and the way your, your, your life is and, and the way your family, you know, your, your, you know, kind of obligations that you have for different things. So that kind of takes time away from uh, just practicing critical mm-hmm. thinking. But I'll tell you, it is much easier than it used to be when I was when I was younger, and I didn't have these skills in pocket, basically. And also, I, I feel like, um, you know, it's a lifelong kind of endeavor. You know, I don't think you ever get perfect at these things. And I think that's something that people should know from the get-go. Yes. You're never going to be a perfect thinker. Right. Because first of all, science, you know, the facts uh, over time move Mm -hmm. and you have to kind of keep up with that. You know, we used to have ideas like uh, we were just learning the other day. We used to think um, like mountain lions or cougars were solitary species, but just recently, I saw on the Florida um, Wildlife uh, Facebook page, they had um, one of those motion sensor cameras, mm-hmm. and they showed probably eight or nine of, of them, and they didn't look like young. I mean, they were young ones, but they weren't um, kittens or anything, and they were all crowded around the camera, hanging out together, and so that was a large group, and, and uh, Susan Freeman was just saying in our class on Thursday night that... She had just read an article where it was saying that we had assumed they were a solitary species because they're so hard to research or follow around mm-hmm. in the wild, right? But they've seen quite a bit of evidence now that they're not solitary. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's about the information part, right, mm-hmm. of critical thinking. You have to keep pulling in new information because information changes over time as our knowledge increases. Yes. Well, I thought that with parenting, that you know, what you learned was the appropriate strategy for a five-year-old for dealing with, you know, cutting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich the proper way. Is, is it a, is it triangles or is it squares? Only mattered for that five-year-old because the younger siblings were coming up and changing and the environment was changing. So it wasn't like all rules could be equally applied at all times for all children in all circumstances. It was always a case by case of what's going on in our lives today. Which child are we dealing with? What are the circumstances? How much of a hurry are we in? What's the stress level? And those are all pieces that go back into your critical thinking grid kind of of like, what is all the information I have to take into account in this situation? And It always seemed to me, at least before I had kids, that you could kind of make decisions and that they would apply. (laughs) And then real life comes along (laughs) and you're like, no, I'm making decisions every single day, but hopefully I'm making them wisely, hopefully, (laughs) as they go along. We'll see. I guess I'd have to ask my adult sons now how well we did on that. (laughs) Absolutely. Maybe I don't want to ask them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that kind of refers to the flexibility Mm -hmm. of your intellect, 
right? And being flexible. And also there's, um, if, if uh, people want to go look at the critical thinking page uh, website afterwards, they can see, um, they also have uh, characteristics of a, a thoughtful mind. Mm-hmm. Like characteristics you're supposed to um, try to build within yourself. So resiliency and flexibility, and I can't remember all of them now, but there's a bunch of them. And it's, you know, intellectual honesty. Yeah. And curiosity, I would imagine. Curiosity is one. one. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. And so it's just if if we kind of build those features into our into ourselves, then uh, it it helps us to be more thoughtful. Mm -hmm. So if you just had to guess what percentage of the population uses critical thinking at work on a fairly regular basis and how many of us are running around on autopilot? Yes, I'm going to say about a third of the people probably use critical thinking. That's what that's what I see in my classrooms typically, and I've taught uh, at St. Petersburg College since 1995. And I typically see about a third of the class catch right on, mm-hmm. and they run with it, and they're very interested. And some of them were already critical thinkers when they came in. The fabulous critical thinkers is nothing that I did. And then two-thirds of them will have some difficulty and one third of that two thirds will have quite a bit of difficulty. And what are some of the common stumbling blocks for the people who have trouble picking it up? They have a closed mind. Ah, okay. So it's, it's not any one of these features. It's just like, I can't do this. And then that stops them. And it could be too. Some of those people have traumatic brain injuries, or it could be that they have biases that they do not recognize that are stopping them. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's that. Hmm. Or they have belief systems that do, are incompatible with critical thinking and they're unable to let them go. Interesting. So are there things that you can do to help them make that shift? Or if, if do you have to just kind of wait until they're ready to make that shift? Okay, well, I have a couple things that I use in my class to help people. We, um, I do require that students click or train a cat and a dog in the behavior class. And initially, students are quite upset about the fact that I'm going to uh, force them to train a cat. And of course, it's their choice. They just won't pass if they don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but so the first thing I do in class is I show them this video, R2 Fish School. And it's a video of a goldfish uh, showing amazing tricks that it learned. And some of the tricks are putting a ball in a basketball hoop, uh, going through a tunnel, swimming through a hoop, and also swimming through weave poles, which that's an agility trick that dogs learn. Yeah. And it's quite difficult to train a dog to do it. I haven't trained a dog to do it. (laughs) Yeah. So here is a goldfish doing it. And so... After I show the students that, then they feel a little bit more comfortable about training a cat. So these kind of MythBuster videos, I find them quite effective. Yeah, yeah. I use another one straight straight from the MythBuster um, TV show in my animal nursing class that shows an oxygen tank falling over and the stem breaking off and it becoming a rocket and going through a um, a, a cement block wall, and that is quite eye-opening for people who are handling oxygen tanks at their work. Yes, I'm sure that is. 
I could discuss it with them, but it's just so much more powerful for people to see something. Right. Yeah, we are a very visual species. So what are the behaviors that you ask your students to train the cat and the dog to do? Okay, I usually keep it kind of wide open for them because some animals already have a large behavior repertoire and and some don't. So the kinds of structure I have for that assignment is, well, first you we use clicker training, so you have to condition the clicker to teach the animal that the click sound means that they're predicts that they're about to receive some sort of reinforcer, mm-hmm. something that they like or want. And so we do that first, and then we do target training. So that's touch any part of your body to any object, which could be a part of my body or could be uh, just a inanimate object. And then I have the students capture a behavior so they just wait for the animal to perform any behavior that the trainer likes and then they'll click and trick treat that so that behavior will strengthen and then I have a little bit different for the dog and the cat so for the cat we do some sort of husbandry type behavior so get in a carrier mm-hmm. on their own get in and out of a carrier on their own or um, let you trim their nails get on the scale wrap in a um, yin towel wrap if you go to um Sophia Yin's uh, webpage, you can Mm -hmm. see about her low stress handling and her towel wrapping techniques. So we we try to use that. So we're just trying to teach the students how to do desensitization and classical counter conditioning with a restraint technique. Mm Mm-hmm. And let's see if I can remember any more that we do. And for the dog, let's see, we do a operant counter conditioning. So take a behavior you don't want and instead insert a behavior you do want. Mm-hmm. So instead of jumping to greet me when I come home, sit to greet me when I come home. That's a, a well-used um, example of that one. We also, in the dog one, do generalizations. So the animal learns to perform a behavior in a certain environment, they might not understand that that behavior is the same in different environments or if you look different, like if you're sitting instead of standing. Mm -hmm. And especially for animals like service dogs that work with people who are in a wheelchair. I mean, if you think the whole time that dog was learning, the person was standing, when they get in a house with a person who's sitting, they might not understand that the cue means the same behavior because the person looks different. They're in a different orientation. Yes. Dogs have that problem all the time. Um, (laughs) My students, they just get sort of stumped and like, he knows this at home. And, you know, we're eating dinner and I keep telling him to lay down. And then finally I stand up and I walk over and I tell him down and then he lies down. And I'm like, yeah, because you stood up and you walked over. And we have to to work on these pieces a little bit. He wasn't doing it. Yeah, well, then. Right. Right. That kind of goes back to the belief thing, you know, mm-hmm. when you think about that. So people believe that their dog understands what the cue means in all environments when from the dog's point of view, they only understand when you're, you know, that the cue is bigger than you think it is. Right. Right. The, the little pieces that are helping them understand that's what you want. And we are so verbal that we think it's all about our words and dogs are much more likely to be responding to body language and position and proximity and all sorts of things that we're completely discounting. I said this magic word and that's what the dog should be responding to. Right. 
Right. So a good a good experiment for that is just to say the word and not do any of the other things mm-hmm. and see what they you know do, and then you then you can find out what cue they're using yes. by parsing. We play with that in class a little bit. So I'll have people stand in a specific position, and then we say the cue, and then sometimes I'll. I'll say, now, what is it that you wish I would have allowed you to do? You know, like if your hands are mm-hmm. held behind your back and you're standing up straight with your head against a wall, so you're not even nodding forward, and then you give your cue and nothing happens. If I were to let you free, are you going to lean forward? Are you going to point your fingers? What What is that piece right. I took from you? Yeah. And And they're like, hmm, yeah, I was going to lean forward and nod my head. Like, okay, that's part of our cue then. Now that we know, <laughs> we can keep it or change it, but we have to know. Right. And that's the critical thinking piece. See how you're doing well, that? Well, yay, taking, I do critical thinking. Who knew? Because I was sure that. I was a lackadaisical thinker before we spoke. <laughs> but apparently in your class, when you're teaching, you're, you're using the critical thinking piece with them and, and with the animals. So yay. That's excellent. Well, that's good to know. So if people wanted to use more critical thinking in their lives... What would what would you suggest as their getting started point? I mean, beyond going to the website, because we're already sending them there. Are there any simple strategies that you would say here's a, an easy way to get started? I think probably the first thing to do is start examining your own biases and beliefs. Okay. That can be hard for people, and it's super, it's super important. So how you would do that is you would write down the topic. So if we wanted to say maybe um, how animals learn, Mm-hmm. You know, I usually do that exercise with my students the first day of class. So what are your assumptions, beliefs, or biases related to animal learning? And just start listing them. And then when you, if you can talk to other people and get their list, then you can start seeing, oh, wait, I also have that bias. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like maybe I think cats are, are, are stupider than dogs. Mm-hmm. Right? Or cats can't learn and dogs learn. Right. It's easy. uh, Dogs want to please us. Mm -hmm. Cats don't. Cats have staff. You know, I mean, that's the big joke. But it's uh, not actually true. I mean, we do have some evolutionary co like not really co-evolution, but we evolved at the same time with dogs. So um, we have a lot of interesting um, uh, relationship pieces with dogs that we might not have with cats. But when we think about when we start critically thinking about why cats might not learn as well or as fast, one piece would be we're not used to training them. Another piece would be we don't really socialize them very well. Another piece would be we don't start training them until they're adults. Usually we don't expect them to learn. Mm -hmm. Our expectations are very low. We give up very easily. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things to think about and your biases are really going to open that up. Yeah, that's an interesting exercise to do to play with it that way and definitely to compare with other people's lists would point out things that you hadn't even considered. Exactly. I forgot to ask you, do you have a dog? I do have a dog. So if your dog, this is your guess, if your dog were to describe you, what would your dog say about you? Uh, well, my dog might say, um, gosh, this person sure sits in front of a tiny box typing a lot. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, her name's Rebel, and she is really uh, cued in on the sounds of the computer. So that sound your computer makes when you turn it off Mm -hmm. 
she'll be resting quietly while I'm grading or doing something. And as soon as that the computer makes that bling sound, she hops right up and, oh, it's time to go do something. So she might say, my owner can be easily manipulated by a cute face. <laughs> Which is a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. And uh, I can make my owner get up by uh, just uh, sitting. That's mm-hmm. her her thing because when I first got her, she was uh, two years old and somebody had surrendered her to the animal services and our um, vet tech school is right next to that. So uh, we go over there and get our dogs for the vet tech program from animal services. So she was um, chosen and I went back there and saw her in the run and fell in love with her. And so she was already an adult and she was she's quite a high arousal dog. So she jump on us and mouth us and things. So I was teaching her, you know, sit is how you get me to pet Mm -hmm. you or play with you or do whatever. So she's finally learned that. And she's just awesome. Now she'll just sit quietly and look at me with that cute face. Let's go do something. Yeah. You know, that's super. How old is she now? She's, uh, I'm almost six. Well, that's good. So she's had four years with you to train you to respond well when she sits, huh? That's correct. <laughs> so if people wanted to learn more about you and the work you do, how could they find out more? Well, I do have a Facebook page. It's uh, under Ginny Price, and that's my professional page that I have uh, my um, colleagues, my behavior colleagues are on there and my uh, coworkers and my students, my vet tech students. So that's the that's the place. I don't have a, a personal website or anything like that. You can also uh, learn... Uh, more about um, veterinary behavior by looking at the Society of Veterinary Behavior Technicians website. And they also have a Facebook page. And um, anyone in the veterinary uh, profession can join. You don't have to be a credentialed technician anymore. You could be uh, a veterinary assistant or a dog trainer. You can still join or an animal trainer, any animal trainer, not just dog trainers. And then um, if you're interested in Uh, becoming specialized in behavior like I am. I have my veterinary technician specialist in behavior, VTS behavior. So if you're interested in that, you can go to the Academy of Veterinary Behavior Technicians website and check that out, the uh, requirements for credentialing. Uh, We're about to uh, have an exam. We have seven candidates sitting for the exam in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada on um, October 4th, I believe That's it is, exciting. Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Equendo uh, uh, Center out there in Las Vegas, which is a veterinary education laboratory center. It's awesome. It is nice that, that there's now a behavior specialty. Well, not now. It's not like brand new. But that there is a behavior specialty for vet techs. I think that's awesome. It is awesome. It is awesome. And the veterinary specialty for the veterinarians just had its 25th birthday this summer. Yeah, so 25 years for them. And we have been uh, recognized as a specialty since 09. So about nine years now. It's actually a little bit younger than I thought. I was thinking it was in the 15-year range for th- for that. But I think it's so wonderful because behavior is such an important piece of animal wellness that having more people be really familiar with the behavior elements of it is extremely valuable. Well, I've loved talking to you today about critical thinking. This has been very interesting and it's definitely um, given me lots of links and things that we'll put into the show notes so that people can go and learn more on their own and 
make some connections, and I'll even see if I can find that uh, Mythbusters oxygen tank one, because probably people will want to see that. <laughs> and um, it's been very much fun. So for anyone listening, if you'd like to learn more about critical thinking, please check into this. But mostly what I'd like to say to people is if you have a friend who's in an animal care profession and they are feeling tired and feeling like this is exhausting and kind of burning out, one of the really important things is a community. And so having people to talk to is very, very valuable. That's one of the things we do here on the podcast is we have these interesting conversations with fascinating people, but also just remind each other that we're all sharing some of the same struggles. So if you know anyone who could benefit from some interesting conversations with fascinating people, please share these conversations with them and point them at the podcast. They can learn more about Ginny Price and Susan Friedman and all sorts of other guests. So thanks so much for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home.